This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Melissa Harris-Perry, Radio Dispatch, The Trans Advocate, The Young Turks, The Media Matters Minute, Activism from Best of the Left, and Rationally Speaking, with special appearance by Radio Lab. And I've got good news for you. If you like the gender you have now, there is nothing in Obamacare that says you're not going to be able to keep your gender. What's behind that term, naturally born woman? Now, for a lot of people, identity is pretty straightforward. I'm black, I'm a woman, and I'm cis. Not a sister in this instance, but a cis. Being cis means that the sex of the body I was born with, the gender I was assigned at birth, and my personal identity all match. And being cis does not make me normal or natural. It just makes me, well, Cis. Now, I point this out because the idea of one's gender not matching one's sex is still novel and assumed to be abnormal to many. And that means that many trans people must still endure widespread ignorance and intolerance about their identities. When we see transgender people like Chaz Bono or others in the media, we're often encouraged to see the spectacular, not the person. When President Obama named Amanda Simpson to the U.S. Commerce Department, she became the first openly transgendered presidential appointee. But she says this of being the first. Being the first sucks. I'd rather not be the first, but someone has to be the first or among the first, and I think I'm experienced and very well qualified to deal with anything that might show up because I've broken barriers at a lot of places, and I always win people over with who I am and what I can do. In a democracy, recognition matters. Asking someone to hide in a closet or live trapped in a body that doesn't match their identity is simply unfair. At the end of the day, everyone wants to be seen for who they are, not what other people assume them to be. And if we aren't willing to see someone for who they are, then it's impossible for them to enjoy the experience of being a full citizen. Welcome to the show, Lauren Hennessy, an actor in New York City and host of the show Bottoms Up with Hennessy. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on Radio Dispatch. Thanks for having me on, guys. So we wanted to have you on because you're a longtime friend, and we frequently go on uh, the podcast Keith and the Girl which you are uh, also involved with. And last time we were on, Hemda and I started talking about gender fluidity and trans stuff. And then we realized that we would love to have you on the show to talk about gender and trans identity. And so I guess to start off, could you just tell us and listeners about yourself? (laughs) (laughs) What is your gender? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh, I'm from Hawaii. (laughs) Um, Basically, I'm what you call transgender, which I just kind of learned this word myself just a few years ago. And before then, I thought I was just um, (sighs) mentally something. I don't know. But uh, basically, I was born in a female body. Uh, so I have, you know, tits and a nanny and all that stuff. <laughs> and um, But I, I, I identify as male. 
Um, that is not really a choice that I have. It's just kind of how you guys identify as whatever gender you are. You know, it's, you don't need your body parts to tell you that you're that. You just are, you know, you know. And I, I, I waited for my, um, penis to grow until I was, I don't know. I feel like the number always changes. I don't really know how old I was, but less than 10, definitely. I waited for my penis to grow and then realized that that wasn't going to happen. But I knew that would because, because I'm a boy. So that's what happens. Your penis grows in. And, um, it didn't. And oh, also I knew it would because I was felt it there. Like I was felt it. I felt it. So I knew that it would be there. You're like, what's taking so long? <laughs> right, right. And that's one thing that's always been tough for me to deal with was that like, um, I guess phantom feeling, you know, that I had in that area all my life, uh, without being able to, to, you know, visually kind of see something to put it there. Like I've, I had throughout my life like a series of oh yeah moments, you know, like when I pull in my underwear, when I look in the mirror, or whatever. Um, and I still have those, <laughs> which you think I'd be used to this by now. But anyway, so that's that's it. And uh, and you um, you use the the pronoun he, right? I, or you prefer? You know, I've uh, I just submitted um, an article to the Huffington Post Gay Voices blog about this, um, about pronouns, which, um, will be out hopefully soon. But, uh, I mean, it, it's important for us all as humans to be identified and acknowledged. It's like one mm -hmm. of our basic needs. Um, male pronouns feel good to me because I feel like for one of the first times in my life, I can finally be identified and acknowledged. And, uh, Part of it is the times we're living in, you know, it's transgender people are, are speaking out more and, um, about their lives and situation. I don't know if it's a birth defect. I don't know if it's a, if it's just normal, you know, but, um, it, it does feel good, but I'm also trying to make it as an actress in New York city, you know, which is one of the main reasons why I'm, I've decided not to transition. Um, there's a few different reasons and transitioning mean, uh, why I'm not getting a sex change, you know, into a male body and taking testosterone, lowering my voice in order to match more what I see in my, you know, in, in me, in my head, um, when I, when I see myself in my head. Um, so it does feel good. However, if you're talking to a casting director and introducing me, you probably want to use a female uh -huh. pronoun just to, just to, you know, and I'm also trying to be kind of gender about gender. Is that a, the adjective. <laughs> an adjective, uh -huh. yeah, thank you. I think we can use it as an adjective. I'm gingerly attempting to um, sort of integrate this idea that guys can look like me and girls can look like you, Molly. Or, you know, guys can look like you and me and girls can look like you and uh, John, rather. Uh -huh. And um, I think that's just as important, you know. I think that's important for people to see and recognize. Well, and so you said that um, that actually, um, like the idea, the identity of uh, of being transgender was something that you actually weren't that aware of until a few years ago. Can you talk about um, Can you talk about that and the kind of process uh, through which you started to realize that 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 this was, you know, kind of, you said you kind of felt crazy. Like, can you talk about um, you know about your kind of coming to this word and this identity? 
Definitely. All right. So I always felt like a boy. You know, I would speak when I was a little kid. When I'm a big boy, I'm going to do it. And it was just, you know, came naturally to me. I had some boyfriends, you know, who knew that I was also going to grow my penis in. And, uh-huh. you know, they were ready for it. Uh, <laughs> And uh, that's that's how people sort of identified with me anyway, just sort of by default a little bit. Uh, so then I, I recognized that that body shift wasn't going to happen. Uh, then I recognized that I am now a girl. Okay, so, okay. Um, and I like girls. <laughs> and I learned that from a very young age. And uh, that was a problem. Because now I am a, a evil person, uh, because I'm raised <laughs> with the belief that this choice of lifestyle is, is wrong. So now on top of that, I have a whole gay scare thinking I'm going to hell. So the whole transgendered I'm a guy thing was put on hold a little bit for the fact that I look like this and I like this, you know, um, so that began a lifelong battle for me of hiding and not telling anyone and feeling like I'm going to hell and like I need to make a sacrifice for God because God made the ultimate sacrifice for me and like, you know, religion. Uh, <laughs> so you, you were raised religious? Uh, I, wa- I was not super duper religious, but with um, a belief system in place, you know. Um, my dad's a minister. <laughs> but he's, he's a good guy, a really, really good guy. And uh, we're very close today. Um, We've always been close. But uh, so anyway, what, I got lost. Uh, where am I going with this? Oh, right. So I'm going to hell. I'm dealing with this uh, up until the point where I actually enrolled myself into escape reparative therapy uh, group and one-on-one um, <laughs> uh, when I was about 17. And that was in New York when I first moved to New York. Uh, it was a little bit upstate, though. Not the city. Yeah. And uh, so... The sound cut out for a second. Lauren said, I met my first girlfriend and she had me watch this movie. And, and she had me watch this movie called Southern Comfort, which was about um, a couple, like a few, you know, country bumpkins who are trans in the deep south and uh, sort of their experiences. And she's like, I just feel like you should really watch this movie. And uh, she didn't, I think she identified some, me, some male energy something a little bit more than just being a lesbian in me or you know uh without directly knowing you know and kind of would have conversations with me about it sort of uh and so that relationship ended and then you know every relationship i had after that people would talk about how they feel like they have the best of both worlds sort of Uh um i dated mostly straight women uh identified as straight um and they're like, oh, well, you, you know. And then I met Hamda, and uh, one of the first times we were together sexually, Hamda's my girlfriend now. Uh, she was like, I, I feel like I have to tell you something. And it was like all serious. And I'm like, okay, okay, here we go. What's up, you know? And she's like, I feel like when I'm with you, uh, I'm like, here it is. You know, you're, you're going to be like, we can't do this anymore because I'm missing something, right? Um, she was also, also, she also identifies as straight. Uh, she said, I feel like when I'm with you, um, that I'm with a guy and I can't really explain that. And I don't know how to say that you fuck like a dude and uh-huh. I feel like you're a dude. Uh, but I get nothing, you know, no, I just felt like I had to tell you that. <laughs> and I started to like tear up, you know, cause she, here she is like affirming everything I've ever felt about myself. And, uh, 
And she's like, oh, God, I'm sorry. You shouldn't have told you that. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm like, no, no, no. No, you see me. You know? It's like this whole, like, notebook moment. Um, and then uh, our friend Emmy, who I have my podcast with now, Bottoms Up with Hennessy, uh, she so eloquently, you know, says like, yeah, duh, you're a dude. Read this book. <laughs> and uh, she just knew, I guess. She's like, yeah, obviously, you're a guy. Like, I could have told you that. Here, like, just read this book. And it was a book called um, Becoming a Visible Man by Jameson Green. And uh, this guy wrote it who transitioned to male body in his f- probably late 40s, I believe, or mid 40s. And uh, he had the really similar experiences and stories in there that I had with the feelings down there, the physical feelings, like with the, um, thinking it would grow in, you know, with the, just knowing, like always just knowing and feeling like, uh, I don't know, dealt the wrong cards type thing. And, uh, and he had this word for it and it was transgender, which I'd heard before, but I'd related to like transvestite and transsexual and transformer or whatever, (laughs) you know, it's a weird word anyway. Um, and that was when I was like, oh, shit, I'm not the only one. Like, there's more dudes like me. I get it. Like, I've heard these stories before, but now I'm, I really identify and I get it. And that's the word. I'm transgender. Cool. And it's nothing to do with me liking pussy or cock. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, I could be guy crazy and and still, you know, <laughs> be transgendered. Well, and that's something we, we talk, uh, we try to talk a lot about like trans issues, trans uh, stuff in the news on the show and have trans people on the show. But like so many people, I think, um, uh, the, the distinction between gender and sexuality is something that people have a really hard time understanding that of these course. are actually two different things. Yeah. Well, they're, because we as a society have a role for those things mainly as uh, in a straight, even I do, you know what I mean? Like women, men, straight, that's just where my brain puts it, you know, woman is with a man and that's a couple and that's what I, you know, when I, so if someone were to say draw a stick figure of a couple, I probably wouldn't draw a gay couple just because uh-huh. it's not on the forefront of my brain, you know? Um, but yeah, I met, uh, I met a, flaming trans guy who's so quote you know girly you know uh just oh my god i'm gonna get married i'm so excited because tomorrow i'm starting tea and after i'm on like i'm gonna grow this little goatee and blah blah and just like going on and on and it's like you could just stay that way Uh (laughs) you know what i mean you could just stay looking like you do like this pixie little chick you know and have these dudes and live your life but but you're so you know it's you're not in the clothes that you are supposed to be, you know, at least how we feel because we are in this society. So we don't, you know, it's like, I don't know. I saw this, um, um, this behind the food with, I don't know if it was with Mark or who it was with, but someone was in a pretzel factory and it's like, there's a machine pumping out little, um, pretzels and they're like little bow ties, right? Or little knots or whatever. Uh-huh. And every once in a while, one of them will come out circular and they don't really know why. It's just kind of what happens with the machine every so often a circle pretzel comes out and it's still a pretzel, right? But they throw them away or they put them in another thing. And that's, that's, that's how I can sort of equate it to people. Like every once in a while, one of us comes out looking like something else. It doesn't mean we're not a pretzel, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We just got titties, son. <laughs> That's a great metaphor.
I want to cut in here for a moment to take the rare opportunity to introduce the next segment. And, and I come in now because it's all related to the previous segment we just heard. Uh, you were just introduced to Lauren Hennessy, and he talked about his experiences as a trans person. And the next segment, you're going to hear more from Lauren, but it's it's sort of very much in, in relation to a, uh, a voicemail and the comments from the previous episode. So in the previous episode, I got this message. This is just a part of it. It is my opinion that there is no such thing as a man trapped in a woman's body, nor a woman trapped in a man's body. The same way there is no such thing as a supermodel trapped in an ugly person's body or a Chinese person trapped in a Norwegian's body. People discriminate based on gender. They laugh at men in dresses. They deride women in suits. But the desperation of those victimized people to change something they cannot change is not a solution. It's merely cosmetics and aesthetics. It's wearing a mask to avoid being bullied. That was listener Robert in Los Angeles, who was actually reading a statement sent to him by a friend of his. And so he was reading the statement from his friend asking me or the audience for help on how to respond to his friend. So I did my best in the previous episode and and gave what I thought was a, a decent rhetorical argument. You know, how do you respond to his friend sort of on a rhetorical level? But the clip I'm about to play sort of addresses a lot of the same issues, but comes at it from a completely different angle. And uh, so I've, I've played this clip before, but I'm taking just, you know, just a segment of it uh, to, to include now because it, it comes at the issue of trans people and the, the sort of the need or the, the desire for surgery, but comes at it completely from a progressive, uh, you know, pro-trans rights angle. And uh, so I, I just thought I would mention that to fill in all the context for you. So Molly said something like gender is a construct, uh, which means I think that gender is a distinction that is created almost entirely by society. I am trying to figure out how this jibes with uh, transsexuals. In particular, Lauren Hennessy said that he has always known he was a boy and even felt a phantom phallus. The implication is that he is innately male. Does this jibe with the idea that gender is a construct? Lauren also said something that I had never heard before, but that brings up a question I have always had about uh, transsexual people. The question I had was, if gender is just a construct, isn't it sort of regressive for trans people to change their bodies in order to conform to cultural expectations of what boys or girls should look like? Of course, it's not for me to judge them if they want to have the surgery, but it was just something I didn't understand. When Lauren said that, by not having surgery, he wanted to be seen as an example of one way in which boys can look. That is, boys can have female-looking, quote-unquote, female-looking bodies and still be boys. This seems to me uh, to be a true rejection of the socially constructed ideas of gender. I like that. Still, Lauren also said that if he'd known it was an option, he would have embraced the opportunity to have the physical uh, to have the physical sex change as an adolescent. In the end, it seems that Lauren does embrace the idea that gender is not just a construction. I'd love to hear your take, or even better, Lauren's. In fact, I'm CCing him on this email right now. <laughs> love That's that. Such a great last line. Um, 
we were at a party talking with um, some friends about our interview with Lauren and how much fun we had, and they brought this one um, person brought up the same question and said like, well, if gender, like if we didn't have such rigid gender expectations, would that mean that like trans folks? might have a little bit more freedom to be like, I am female Mm -hmm. presenting, but I am uh, male identifying. And is the surgery, like, is that part of the gender expectations that we have, that we're all kind of like bound to? So I think let's just read Lauren's response and then we can maybe talk a little bit more. So Lauren responded, you know, I don't think that gender is a construct, but that uh, the sex and gender pairings definitely are. And so this, to, real quick, to make the distinction, so sex is like what your genitals are, and gender is your gender identity. So that's an important distinction. Like, so the sex of a baby is female. If the baby has, like, female, have, you know, two X chromosomes and female, you know, biology, that's, that's sex. Sex is a biological term. Gender is a social term. Yeah. Lauren continues, I think it came from the patriarchal uh, movement when the male sex realized that sex between a male sex person and a female sex person is what creates life and that they are necessary in the process, structures began forming and roles were put into place. Women were taken out of the fields and put into the house. Before patriarchy, uh, documented in cultures around the world, back to ancient Mesopotamia, there were many examples of of an exemplary race, commonly referred to as B-E-R-D-A-C-H, Burdick, uh, quote, two-spirit. These were basically uh, homosexual and often transgender folks that were revered and depended on by the rest of the tribe for guidance. They were given high ranks among their community as priests, healers, etc., because they were considered to have the spirit of both a man and a woman. Even better. So gender differences were in fact recognized since the beginning of time, but sex and gender assignments are definitely constructs. As far as the phantom penis goes, (laughs) Lauren writes, I have no fucking clue. Why? In all capitals. No clue. It bugs me out if I think about it too much, but it's there. Whether it's in my head or an actual thing or what, I can't say. I'm still learning. As far as me transitioning as a teen, it is true that I feel uncomfortable in my body 99% of the time. It's true that I would feel more comfortable in the body that I see myself as in my head. And it's probably true that I feel this way based on societal constructs. Uh, Anyway, thank you for your email. Which I think that that's great because it's just like, yeah, all of these things can be the case. Like, Lauren can feel uncomfortable in a female body and still want a male body because it would make him feel more comfortable but also, like, that's not necessarily, you can't necessarily separate that from our gender expectations, but it doesn't delegitimate the desires, obviously, of trans folks to have the body that feels correct for them. Let's look at the roots of this sickly tree. We're living in the branches of 5,000 years of patriarchy. Don't let it hypnotize you. Remove yourself from the scene. Your body's beautiful. Problem is the context we've been in. This is Summer Iman and Daniel Williams, and we're in with Kristen Williams to talk to us about no relation. Oh, yes, well, <laughs> uh, but she's in a talk with us about the history of transgender, transsexual, and lots of, uh, you know, the etymology of much of the language that we use today and how it's changed over time. Sure. So, most of your uh, writing on this topic, uh, 
you've been doing a lot of research um, at uh, you, know, you have all this uh, first hand source material. Um, mm. How'd you come by it? So I, I've always been interested in the way that we, uh, the language that we use to talk about our experience and our identity. Gender is such a nuanced topic. And uh, when we try to describe all experience related to gender, we don't have a lot of terms and we get creative with the terms that we have and we mash words together and we use hyphenated words and we do those kinds of things and it's interesting to kind of track that identity that language the language that we have used to describe our own experience as well as the language that um let's say the for instance, the cisgender um, community mm-hmm. has used to uh, relate to trans experience. And could, speaking could of the meaning of words surrounding gender, what does cisgender mean? Okay, so cisgender is a relatively new term, which uh, kind of came uh, kind of came into common usage about oh three, four, five years ago. Um, Originally, it was generally only used in gender studies, uh, and it refers to um, what is not transgender. So uh, there's transgender, uh, people who who have a non-cis history, experience, or expression. Then you have uh, cisgender, and um, that would be people who do not have a transgender history, experience, or expression. So a cisgender person would be someone who's comfortable with the gender they were assigned at birth. Yes, absolutely. That would be one type of cis person, yes. And how's it spelled? C-I-S. Ah. Cisgender. Not- and um, would the same be true of someone who was comfortable with their sex at birth? Uh, would they be a cissexual? Um, <laughs> some people do say cissexual, yes. Comfortable um, with the sexuality that's yes, at birth. Yes. Huh. Um, some, and, and people have used that. Uh, it's interesting to watch people, how we play with terms to kind of describe our experience, our history. I, I will say, however, that, that word is a particular murder for anyone with a lisp. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, what are some of the oldest terms you've found around gender identity expression? Well, I'll, I'll kind of stick to some of the um, uh, more kind of modern, old terms. <laughs> and by okay, modern, so, you mean? Uh, like a century old or okay. more. Um, so there's uh, ambisextrous, which began, uh, that was first published in 1917 to talk about the transgender experience. Uh, this was in relation to someone who was a female impersonator. Um, and of course, ambisextrous does not mean that today. It means something completely different than the trans experience. So that term has certainly changed. Yeah, I think it was Mick Jagger or someone of that era that referred to themselves as being ambisexual for being bisexual or. Exactly. Words, words change over a period of time. Um, so originally it was kind of asserted in academia that transsexual uh, was a term that was created by Magnus Hirschfeld in 1923. Um, there was, uh, it's also been asserted that Caldwell, uh, um, 
a man who wrote on sexology, invented the term in 1949. Um, but recently I found it in medical journals dating back to 1907. And that's interesting because I had always heard transsexual um, credited to Harry Benjamin. And Harry Benjamin, uh, it, he asserted that he had created that term and later kind of backtracked a little mm. bit saying, well, maybe I heard that term somewhere and just kind of appropriated it, I, but I can't remember. And <laughs> we should probably talk a little bit about who these people are. Harry Benjamin was a pioneer in... in um in medical, um, in the medical treatment of trans folk. And Magnus Hirschfeld? Magnus Hirschfeld was just uh, an all-around GLBT pioneer worldwide. And one other person that will probably come up, uh, Christine Jorgensen, can you explain who yes. she is? Christine Jorgensen was, was not the first American <laughs> transsexual. Um, there were a number of transsexuals before her, but she was the first sensationalized transsexual, making worldwide news about her so-called sex change. So we had ambisexual in 1930. Ambisextress. Ambisextress, pardon me, in, what did you say, 19... 1917. 1917, and then transsexual comes on the scene in... In 1907. And how does the... Uh, usage of how's so, that word used at that time? So at that time, transsexual literally meant cross sex, uh, trans, uh, uh, like cross gender, really is the 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 usage. And um, then in 1908, it shows up in medical terms uh, with a hyphen between the two s's, and mm. that referred to um, like cross-sexual, sexuality across the sexes. Uh, and then in 1915, the word transsexed uh, shows up in newsprint, which um, refers to really transgender. Is that being used as a verb there? It, it's being used to talk about um, the experience of being born a certain way, uh, being born in this in this in this meaning uh, being born female and living your life as male mm. but not as a transsexual not in the the way that we commonly not with surgical intervention right absolutely this is someone who is just living full time as male um, and in this usage uh, they they uh, use that to talk about a transsexed experience. Now, when does transgender come into the mix? Okay, so the proto-term, uh, as far back as I've been able to track it, is, I believe, 1917 um, with Magnus Hirschfeld. Uh, excuse me, that's actually 1918. And that German word was transgestic mus. Transgestic is a great word and should be used every day, I have to say. Because it's like trans, I, I, majestic or, or, or Exactly. What? Like, oh my God, she's so beautiful. She's transgestic. <laughs> well, actually, the, so jestic uh, is referring to um, gendered uh, okay. uh, behavior. And so it's talking about... Um, the state of having cross-sexed gender behavior. So about gender expression in that case rather yes. than identity? Yes, absolutely. 
And so originally it was, if you look up the term transgender in dictionaries, you will be told that it was invented in the 1990s or that it was invented in the 1980s or that it was invented in the late 1970s. And then if you look at uh, gender theory books, you will find sometimes it's it's uh, asserted that it was invented by a cross-dresser named uh, uh, Virginia Prince in the late 1970s and that it's a derivation of a term she invented that was um, that it that uh, was uh, uh, trans uh, transgenderist um, in 1969 she invented a term transgenderal um, and a few late uh, any and she used that uh, once and never use that term again. I can see why. <laughs> However, um, just a few months later, in the early part of 1970, the term transgender was used in an Iowa um, TV guide uh, in reference to um, um, uh, a movie about a supposed transsexual. So... How is, um, have you been able to approach any academic with, you know, your primary source document saying, hey, you're wrong on, like, you know, who you're signing this on? Um, I have reached out to a few people, um, and, and usually this was in relation to translations of, uh, of German, uh, gender words, um, and uh, I've not gotten a, and I've not really gotten a very good response, uh, um in in kind of uh talking about these the the ways they've chosen to interpret certain translations mm. so there's debate over how to translate the german oh, into english oh absolutely yes what in your opinion is the most interesting term you've run across uh related to gender identity expression well i mean currently it's tranny um, Ooh. that's, that's actually a, a very interesting word. Why? Um, well, it's, it, it, um, it, from people that I've talked to, uh, specifically older gay men, uh, the term was used in the 1970s, the late 1970s, as almost a term of endearment. Um, and the f- term first, uh, showed up in print in 1983 in Gay Times, and, um, it was used in a very kind of pithy way uh, to talk about trans folk. And uh, from there, uh, throughout the 1980s, it was, uh, it, it, whenever it shows up in print, it's almost always used in kind of this pithy way. It's kind of like saying, hey, shorty, or something like that. Um, and it was the mid-1990s that it began to become an almost exclusively, it almost... Y- exclusively used in the porn industry and so now whenever you look at uh google search trends the word uh the word is almost exclusively used when we're talking about sex work and prostitution it's the power of the words of the words of the words Out from the pages and grips the 
Keith Abloh is one of the pundits, or I should say commentators, on Fox News. Dr. Keith Abloh? He refers to himself as a doctor, but I really do question his credentials because he said some pretty questionable things in the past. Now, we cover his commentary on the show often because some of the stuff that he says is pretty dangerous and hateful, and uh, he absolutely does not hold back when it comes to the LGBT community. Now, recently in California, uh, there was a a proposal by the governor, it's known as the California's School Success and Opportunity Act, and what it would do is it would allow transgender students to use uh, the bathroom that they identify with in terms of their gender. So let's say you were biologically a, a boy, but you identify as a girl, you would be able to use the girl's bathroom, right? Um, Sounds well, like a huge problem. Huge problem for someone like Keith Abloh. <laughs> uh, so Keith wrote, uh, I'm going to refer to him as Keith. Well, how about that? Uh, he did. He is a you know licensed medical doctor. He is. It's a little unfortunate. He went to. Uh, He's a psychiatrist. Yeah, he went to. Uh, he, my, I went to Tufts. He went to the medical school of my alma. That's why he's so questionable. <laughs> totally. I'm totally kidding. Anyway, um, so he uh, wrote on foxnews.com, and he said the following about transgender students. Uh, I know that other psychiatrists may well disagree, and I know the LGBT activists will criticize me, but I believe that allowing this choice is profoundly destructive psychologically to all students, including the ones who identify themselves as transgender. Oh, well, thank you for telling transgender students what's best for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he knows. Clearly he knows. Yeah, he's yeah. long been against it. I, he's been on Howard a lot, and, and I hope not anymore, because they got into a fairly significant beef mm -hmm. uh, last time, because he was talking about Chaz Bono and, like, the danger that Chaz Bono was sending to all these other kids, that, uh, you know, that it's, uh, that it's okay to uh, change your sexual orientation, not your sexual orientation, but mm -hmm. your whole sexual identity to have the surgery. You know, and he just, like, Howard was like, I think Chaz is happy. Yeah. Like, I think Chaz has sort of found... Uh, you know uh, uh, who he is and and why are we like this seems like a success story yeah why on earth why are we, are we even getting involved right, in this right, situation right. right it's none of your damn business okay um, but he does continue to write some pretty mean and hateful things he says I don't see anything but toxicity from the notion of a person with female anatomy feeling free to use the urinal in the boys restroom while a boy stands next to her and uses one too so this is an argument that a lot of conservatives will make right like you can't but like they make it needlessly sexual right if, yeah, if right. you are biologically uh, a, a woman or a girl and you identify as a boy you don't get aroused by using a bathroom or using you know and, and you're not going to be standing next to a urinal with a boy and like checking out his privates like I don't know why they make up this scenario in their head yeah, like they think of the worst weirdest case scenario exactly where they think instead of thinking this might help kids who are who don't know where to go, where they are, who don't feel like they belong anywhere, who are at real risk of hurting themselves at a worst case scenario and at a bare minimum are likely to experience some significant depression. Right? Absolutely. And, and, and they take it to, what if a guy pretended to want to be a girl so he could get into the girl's bathroom and see their vaginas? That, like, that doesn't... Like, and you're like, dude, I don't think that's going to happen. I, that's, not, that's not a thing. And also, the school's not moron. They're not just going to be like, okay, you identify as a girl, go use the girl's bathroom. Right, like, exactly, like, exactly. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, usually when Republicans, or I should be specific, conservatives make that type of argument, it's some form of projection. So is that something that he thought of when he was in school? Like, 
I don't I don't understand where he gets that from, right? Because that wouldn't even cross my mind. I wouldn't yeah. think that someone would go through the torture of pretending to be a gender that they don't actually identify with just so they could use the bathroom that they're not supposed to use. Right. I it's mean, so stupid. I mean, wouldn't they just be more likely to go into that bathroom? You know, I mean, like they're going to go to all this trouble, they're going to like have paperwork, they're going to tell their parents, you know? Like, I mean, that's, I, I'm sure that you have to tell your folks. I don't think it's, you got to tell the principal. You can't just be like, oh, today, I feel like a girl today. No, th this is my favorite part, okay? And it, I think it's very symbolic of what conservatives usually think about science. I am not convinced by any science. I can find that people uh, with definitively male DNA and definitively male anatomy can actually be locked in a cruel joke of nature because they are actually female. He doesn't believe the science, okay? Just, that's, that's his main argument. It's all bullshit. It's all made up. Yeah, so what does he think these people are doing? They're just making shit up. Like, they just want to start. All the, the transgendered community of the world, of the world, yeah. they're just... He yeah. doesn't believe the science. He doesn't, he's not buying it. Well, okay. it's really It's really fun to be uh, discriminated against. It's really fun to feel like you're trapped in someone else's body. Um, it's, it's great to know that your community has a very high level and rate of depression and suicide. I mean, this guy is a joke. Yeah. And having him on any television show or any radio show is... Destructive. I think it's, it's destructive to society. This type of guy should not have any format to speak on. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Coleman Lowndes. During the February 14th edition of Fox & Friends, co-host Clayton Morris joined his Fox News colleagues in mocking Facebook's decision to offer its users a variety of new gender terms, triggering a wave of criticism, including an open letter from the intersex group Interact, which expressed the group's frustration with feeling, quote, disregarded as a butt of a joke. This past week on Fox & Friends Saturday, Morris took an opportunity to make an impassioned plea for understanding of transgender and intersex people. I mean, there are a number, I mean, millions of Americans and children who are born with the sexual organs who are not there or are not fully developed and therefore don't define themselves by a particular gender. I mean, that's a fact. It's not as black yeah, and white yeah. as we would like to make it. Look, I made a pretty ignorant statement a few weeks ago. We were talking about the Facebook story uh, where they added the bunch of different gender yes, identifying things. Yeah. And I made sort of an offhanded comment and I regretted it later because, wait a second, there are people who are actually dealing with this and right. I'm an idiot for saying something stupid like that. So before you open your mouth, just think about it a little bit. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the Freedom Center for Social Justice. Marriage equality has seemingly turned the emotional tide of the majority of the population in favor of gay rights. The romantic notion of love conquering all has been told in fairy tales we've heard our whole lives. After all, we can relate to the desire and the feelings. And what empathetic person would purposely deny that fairy tale ending to even one of their neighbors? The right to marry, however, is far from the only issue facing the LGBTQ community. Community. The refusal of businesses to provide services, landlords being unwilling to grant leases, inadequate access to medical care, and being fired from jobs based on gender identity or sexual orientation are perfectly legal anywhere specific legislation hasn't been passed to outlaw such discrimination. And spoiler alert, there isn't much legislation to be found. 
the work to change this landscape is happening just a bit under the corporate media's radar. It turns out the photo op of a couple signing a lease isn't as newsworthy as a kiss at a wedding ceremony. The Freedom Center for Social Justice, located in Charlotte, North Carolina, is hard at work on these often ignored vital issues. Their LGBTQ Law Center provides legal representation, education, and advocacy to assist with name changes, divorce, marriage, custody, landlord-tenant disputes, powers of attorney, wills, and employment issues. Their mission is, quote, to enhance quality of life by increasing the number of healthy options and opportunities available to low-income communities, communities of color, sexual minorities, and youth, unquote. They also run the Transgender Employment Program, which understands that unemployment and discrimination disproportionately affects the trans community, especially trans people of color. They partner with organizations, businesses, and regional employers to train and prepare those in need of assistance, finding a substitute job to support themselves and their families. Finally, when they aren't hosting name change clinics and petition drives alongside their legal and employment training work, the Freedom Center for Social Justice holds an annual workshop for the trans community and allies. The 2014 Transgender Faith and Action Network Conference is August 29 through 31 in Charlotte. Registration is open now for this networking and advocacy training opportunity. Organizers are gearing up for sessions on legal protections, health and wellness, employment, and growing more inclusive faith communities. Visit the Transgender Faith and Action Network site, tfaan.org, to register for the conference, follow them on Facebook and Twitter, and sign up for the newsletter to support the petition drives and stay up to date. Spread the word about the Freedom Center for Social Justice, support their advocacy, and help them help all of us to get better on the challenges facing our friends and neighbors. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage how has the psychiatric community um, changed in their attitude towards um, the trans population? At one time, the DSM-4 classified it as a mental illness, and I know that there are some changes that are occurring. Could you respond on that? And what Beautiful question. Beautiful question. So it used to be the DSM said that homosexuality was a mental disorder. When that was taken in, it was re kind of replaced by a gender identity disorder. So if you behaved in a way that wasn't in line with your sex assigned at birth, you were disordered. Okay, so you could sleep with someone, but if you were an effeminate man or a masculine woman or in any other way transgender, you're still disordered. There's a great book called The Last Time I Wore a Dress, and it's about this. It's, a, it's about a, a young lady who was kind of butch, and was institutionalized almost all of her adolescence because she didn't act like a girl under gender identity disorder. So the trans community has advocated very, very robustly uh, over the last several decades to get that changed. Now, um, at the, the new DSM, when that comes out, gender identity disorder is going away. So everyone will be cured of that. And it's going to be replaced by something called gender dysphoria, which is in some ways much better.
better. In some ways, it still stigmatizes a community. In some ways, uh, it, at least this has an exit point. So gender identity disorder, if you're ever diagnosed with that, it doesn't matter what you do, you always have that disorder till the day you die. There's no exit from that. This, it has an exit, and it's associated with uh, the sense of anxiety, the fear, and all that kind of stuff, the depression that, that goes along with not transitioning or transitioning and all of the difficulty associated with that. Once you get past that, you address um, the gender issues, whether that's through therapy or therapy and hormones or therapy and hormones and surgery, you no longer have gender dysphoria, which is much better. So I recently read a um, review of your book, uh, on, on the, the Sadness book, sorry, the, the Loss of Sadness book, by one of our former guests, Sally Sattel. And um, she was pointing out a kind of an interesting thing. I want to ask you what happened there, because this was written before the DSM-5 was published. Uh, she was uh, she recounted the sort of the, the history, the turbulent apparently history of psychiatry in the 1960s and 70s, which then led to uh, the DSM-3 in 1980 and the, the, the exclusion of homosexuality as as a disease. Now, apparently, similar situation has arisen with uh, the transgender community, where, however, uh, the community itself seems to be, according to Satel at least, divided. Some people uh, want the condition, quote unquote, to be eliminated just like it happened with homosexuality, because they don't want to be feel you know, perceived as, as a sort of uh, pathological deviant. Right. The condition but here being identifying yes. as a gender other than your than biological sex. That's correct, yeah. yes. But, but, part, but some people within the same community, on the other hand, want to keep it there because that way the, 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 the health insurance company is going to pay for operations, for instance. Oh, That's exactly right. Unlike the homosexuality uh, debate, where the community was essentially united in not wanting to be stigmatized. Um, the, uh, the gender identity community, if you will, is, is divided over this issue because medical intervention plays such a role in, 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 in improving this, their situation. The way this was handled uh, was that uh, gender identity disorder was taken out of the sexual, I don't know if Sally Sattel discussed this in detail, but it was taken out in order, what, a compromise was reached where it was kept in the manual to hopefully keep the insurance flowing, uh -huh. the insurance reimbursement flowing, but it was taken out of the disorders chapter, sexual disorders chapter, given its own chapter and relabeled uh, gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. So it does not have, it's the only chapter, if you look at all the chapters in DSM-5, that does not have the word disorder or dysfunction in the title of the chapter. So it's attempting to depathologize it by saying, even though the criteria are very similar, what it's trying to do is sort of spin it in a way that the problem isn't that your 
self-identified gender is different than your biologically or socially identified gender. The problem is, if that's true and you're unhappy about it, and you're mm -hmm. having problems, the dysphoria. Mm -hmm. Now here's what's interesting about this. People don't remember now that that's exactly what happened with homosexuality. Uh -huh. mm. That in 1980, with the DSM-3, there was a big debate, and instead of taking homosexuality out full stop, they simply took out egocentric homosexuality, where people felt okay about it, and they left in the category of egodystonic homosexuality, that is, homosexuality that you feel unhappy about. Well, maybe you feel unhappy about it because everyone around you is telling you exactly. you're a deviant. <laughs> exactly. And the problem is, once you do this, and this is my feeling about gender identity dysphoria, and I don't know how they're going to do this in the future, but once you have a category that depends on your being unhappy about something, mm -hmm. it logically or conceptually destabilizes the category the category because immediately people said about the homosexuality category yeah but if you're unhappy about something that's not a disorder then why is that a disorder people are unhappy about all sorts of things <laughs> right, right? it's just conceptually it doesn't work right. and it really when you go to uh, gender dysphoria you have the same problem if gender if gender identity issues are not in themselves a disorder then why is gender dysphoria a disorder? You're unhappy about something that's not a disorder, so people are unhappy about all sorts of things. So the question of whether this will stay in the manual indefinitely, I would say it's, it's, it's on the path that homosexuality uh, was put on to get it out of the manual entirely. However, you do have the issue you raised, Massimo, that this is a very serious issue for the community. Sure. These, are, these are expensive treatments, lengthy treatments, um, we have a culture that, quite frankly, to be blunt about it, is cruel, self-defeating, in my view, in the limitations it puts on insurance reimbursement, the inability to get help for things that are not considered disorders, that are legitimate human suffering, that's in all our interest to help people in our culture with. And so you have this barrier that you didn't have with homosexuality. So this is a great case study if somebody's interested in, in the complex uh, conjunction of, you know, medicine, uh, uh, politics, uh, cultural philosophy uh, influences, too. philosophy. This, it's also, I mean, that that particular case could be a, you know, a, a book in and of itself. I'm sure it absolutely is because, um, look, just stepping back for a second um, from the politics um, until this new iteration of the whole debate, the question really was. Uh, what is disordered here and how do you think about it? The people who thought it, it is a disorder, and there are a lot of people who thought or think, still think sure. it is a disorder, uh, it, you know, the question for them was, okay, it is very harmful perhaps to be out of whack with your own, you know, actual identified gender, um, but what's disordered about that? Do you think, for instance, that there is some biologically designed conformity between your idea of yourself and what your body is like? I mean, how does this work exactly? Mm. And nobody really could crisply answer that question in the way we can with anxiety. Let's say panic disorder. You can say, well, what's going, even though we don't know how it happens exactly, well, you can say, well, what's going wrong is that fear is designed, biologically, roughly speaking, to be a signal of danger. Mm -hmm. And if this is just being triggered randomly to the point where you're incapacitated with no imminent threat, something's gone wrong with this mechanism. But with gender identity issues, 
it wasn't clear, it was conceptually actually hard to figure out, do we have these ideas in our head? So that raises fundamental issues about the limits of mental disorder and so on. It is a very interesting case. And I imagine uh, that that kind of rationale made the homosexuality debate thornier as well, because you could argue that, you know, biologically, uh, in evolutionarily, the sexual urges were designed to help our genes procreate and still sort of an open question how adaptive homosexuality, some degree of homosexuality in the population is, um, you know, and, and that also depends on whether you're looking at the sort of tribe level or species level or whether you're looking at the individual level. Right. Um, and so, I can, yeah, I can see that being another problematic criterion to use to define disorder. And, and it was, it was an issue, but as we uh, actually cycled through a little earlier in the conversation, one, the, the DSM did two things. One is it said initially when it got out ego-dystonic homosexual, ego-syntonic homosexual, you know, homosexuality mm -hmm. that you don't feel bad about. Right. Or you only feel bad about because society is oppressing you mm -hmm. and telling you you're, you're, you're inadequate, mm -hmm. which was also considered to be that's not a disorder to be, to respond to that kind of horrific mm -hmm. social disapproval and pressure. But the point is, um, if you don't have distress or impairment directly as a result of a condition, what the hell's disordered about it was the argument. So, so one thing was the harm. But then some people said, yeah, but you can't reproduce the same way everybody else does because you're in interested in people of your own uh, sex and, you know, da, 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 and all that. And the move there was basically, as we discussed with fetishism, the move there was basically to say, you know, in our modern society, in our modern world, what matters about sexuality isn't the reproduction per se. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that you can have a full human relationship with somebody. We with should tell that to the Pope, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> <laughs> right. How many of us have a full human relationship with our partners? Right. Here's that question. So, so the point is, <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. So the point is um, um, that this issue, you're right, this homosexuality brought up many of these same issues, but in that case, they were, fin they were really directly addressed and finessed in very neat ways. The gender identity uh, issue is even a little more complex than that. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So as many of you will recall, I gave you a homework assignment in the previous episode, uh, so I'm sure that almost all of you have gone back and listened to Radio Lab, the episode from August 9th, 2010, entitled Words. But if you have not heard that, I mean, frankly, I think you should pause now go listen to it, and then come back. But uh, but if you haven't heard it and you're not going to, it's okay. It'll still make sense. You'll, you're just missing some context that I think would be nice. But to get to the point of why I actually had you listen to that episode, it goes back to the last episode I did on trans rights. You know, I, I knew that I was going to do this episode specifically about the power of words, and that stems directly from the last trans episode I did because the conversation that happened after that episode, as often happens, was you know was about uh, you know the trans issue, but it wasn't about you know the atrocities inflicted on trans people or how they're denied health care or how they can be fired from their jobs because of their sexuality and so on. 
It was about the words we use to discuss the issue. And I don't, I don't mean to pick on him, but Jacob from Indianapolis was the one who called in first and sort of got the conversation rolling. Other people chimed in a lot. But he, he basically expressed that he had sort of a problem with these new words like cis or the pronouns that, that get used. And he just felt that they were sort of unnecessary because you know, cis people are the dominant group. Why do we need to call ourselves something? Uh, we, we just are sort of the norm so there's nothing special about that. And all the pronouns seem, you know, a little strange, a little weird. It's hard to take them seriously. And you know, so, so basically, you know, it, it's impossible to argue that it would be incorrect to give something a label, you know, to label cis people as cis, um, you know, white people as white or straight as straight. You know, you can't you can't say that it, it would be incorrect. So his basic argument, and uh, you know, other people who have chimed in on the same position, is that it's just unnecessary. We just don't need to have those labels. And but frankly, I think that that is not only a weak position, a very weak argument to have, but a very counterproductive position. And what I argued at the time, you know, in essence, was that language needs to serve society, not the other way around. So if nature turns out to be more complicated than the words we currently have available, then we just need more words, rather than trying to insist that nature fit into the boxes of the current definitions that our vocabulary allows right now. You know, because doing that basically denies nature. It rejects the evidence. It makes us disbelieve what is in front of our faces. But as rational people, that's not really an option at all. So it, all this stuff is happening. So we have to label it because that's what humans do. And so that, that's what I argued at the time. And, you know, language, it allows us to understand people better, communicate with more accuracy and so on. But there's something deeper about how using words to name things changes the way we see the world. And this is where the radio lab, lab segment comes in. I'm going to play just a bit of it. Uh, obviously, I can't play the whole show that I think you should go listen to. But to set up this clip, the hosts are interviewing a woman who was struggling very hard to teach a deaf man to communicate. And this guy had really never had any form of language before. He didn't think in terms of words. And that's where the story starts. So this man that Susan met, we don't actually know his real name, but when she wrote about him in her book, A Man Without Words, she called him Ildefonso. There they are, sitting in the classroom. She's right there with him. And of course, she's wondering, what have you been doing for 27 years? <laughs> so she thinks, well, let me see if I can teach him some just basic sign language. In an interesting case, she takes out a book and makes the sign book. But the sign for book, it looks like opening up a book. So he thought I was ordering him to open a book. So he grabs the book and he opens it. Because he thought I was asking him to do something. It was very difficult. If, if I gave him the sign for standing up, he thought I wanted him to stand up. And so I couldn't, I couldn't have a conversation with him. And it was the most frustrating thing I have ever done in my life. Wait a second, how long did this go on for? Well, uh, weeks. It was weeks. Wow. Oftentimes, when we said goodbye or just left, we couldn't really say goodbye, I really believed that we wouldn't see each other again. And I was oftentimes very surprised when he would be sitting there at the table. And I think sometimes he looked surprised that I showed up. <laughs> but after a couple of weeks of him constantly miming, copying me. She had an idea. 
perhaps it's just possible that if uh, if I died tomorrow, I would have had only one really really good thought in my life, and this was it. I thought I'm going to ignore him. I taught an invisible student. I stopped talking to him, and I stopped having eye contact, and I set up an empty chair. And then she says she would hold up to this empty chair a picture of a cat. And I was trying to explain to this invisible student that this creature, a cat, so I'd be miming a cat and petting a cat, and then I signed the sign for cat. Then she would hop to the other seat, the invisible student seat, and pretend to get it. Oh, oh, I know with my facial expression. Oh, I get it. So and you're I- playing all the parts. You're both the teacher and the invisible student. That's right. That's wow. right. Doing all these crazy things. And he just watched me. He stopped copying her, which was good. But I do this over and over and over for days and days and days. And she says he just didn't get it. He was, he looked bored a lot of times. But one day, in the middle of one of these endless pretend student exercises, something happened. Out of the corner of her eye, she sees him shift his body. And he looked, it's interesting how his body was upright and he looked like something was about to happen. He looked around the room. This is a 27-year-old man, and he looks around the room as if he had just landed from Mars, and it was the first time he ever saw anything. Something was about to happen. His eyes grew wider, she says, and then wider. And then... He slaps his hands on the table. Oh, everything has a name. And he looks at me in this demanding way, and I sign table. And he points to the door, and I sign door, and he points to the clock, and he points to me, and I sign Susan. And then he started crying. He just collapsed, and he started crying. What is it that happens in human beings when we get symbols and we start trading symbols? It changes our thinking, it changes our ideas of, of, it's it's no longer the thing, a table that we eat on, but there's something about the symbol table that makes the table look different. Ildefonso was in love. He was in love. It's like everything has a name. And for the first couple weeks, he had this, this list of names that kept growing and growing. Paper. Eagle. Clock green. I kept copying words for him. Cats. Alligator. Cat. Cardinal. Gave him the sign for door. 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 Then I would door. write D-O-O-R. Serpent. See that. And he Strawberries. folded this paper. Paper. As if it was treasure. Treasure. And he would pull it out every day and he would Lion. carefully unfold it. Tiger. And he would add to it. Orange juice. Apple. DJ. Thinking. Leaf. Horse. Leaf. Idea. Add to it. Lamp. Blue. Table. Bird. Wall. Dove. Name. Add to it. Pig. Left. Front. Right. Cows. Hawk. Left. Of the blue wall. Octopus. Symbol. Treasure. Egg. What is it that happens in human beings when we get symbols? Symbols. You know, once you have begun... 
to put words onto things, you can look at a thing, say this symbolic sound, table, and the person opposite you knows that you're talking about. But she seems to be saying something deeper, though, that like when you get the word for table, that suddenly the table, like this table right yeah, here, but, looks different. Like it somehow the word changes the world in some fundamental way. If you like that clip, there's a ton more fascinating context to go with it in the full episode that's at Radiolab, but that's basically the core of what I wanted to touch on. So to answer the question, why do we need words like cis to describe a dominant group? Why does Facebook need 50 new pronouns for people to use as self-identifiers? Well, you know, beyond simply describing these concepts of nature more accurately and helping us communicate, I would argue that when we give things labels that are as accurate to their nature as possible, it allows us to see them in a new and deeper way. It helps us connect with them and understand them. And so the word says, for instance, helps me understand myself in a new way. You know, of course, I'm the same as I've always been, but I see my place in the world more accurately and with more nuance thanks to that word. It makes it easier for me to see myself as a member of a group that lives alongside many other groups who have members with absolutely equal value to me, even if their groups aren't as big as mine. You know, it's, it's often all too easy to fall into the trap of seeing the world only through our own eyes and getting a really warped view of reality. And so now, since I'm on this science kick, I'll finish off with help from Neil deGrasse Tyson on his new show, Cosmos. And I've got to tell you, if you're not watching Cosmos, then I just seriously question your priorities and life choices. But he was talking recently about how there's a limit to how far we can see into space because light travels at a finite speed. And since the universe is a little less than 14 billion years old, that means that we can't see any farther than 14 billion light years into space more time would have to pass to allow the light from farther away to reach us just for us to be able to see it. So the result of that is that we can see the same distance in all directions from our planet, which gave me this thought that young children, narcissists, and astrophysicists all see the universe in the same way with themselves as being at the absolute center of it. But only astrophysicists happen to know that that's an illusion. Where are we in the universe? at the very center. In the observed universe, everyone gets to feel special. No matter which galaxy you happen to live in, when you look out to the universe, you'll find yourself at the center of the cosmic horizon. But this is just an illusion. In reality, there is no center, and the cosmic horizon is no more real than the horizon at sea. It's what you get when you have a finite speed of light in a universe that had a beginning in time. That's going to be it for today. A quick note that I'm moving this weekend, so the next episode will be a rerun to give myself a little bit of a break. Uh, get your calls in in the meantime on this or any subject. The number again, 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft.com. 
Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And Our program began with the, the story of Il Defonso. Right, which we heard from Susan Schaller. Il Defonso was the guy who for 27 years had no language at all. So you kind of wonder... I mean, I can, I can tell you that Like, I, what happened uh, to Il Defonso once he got language? Right, and after that first breakthrough where Il Defonso realized things have names, Susan ended up leaving for a few years. Let's see, it was uh, about four years, I think, four or five. But then she decided to write a book about him. And so... I um I went and found him again, and he had language, and I could ask him all kinds of questions. Were you able then to sit down with him and ask him about his life and really get the sort of his biography? Somewhat, somewhat. One um, area that everyone wants to know about is what was it like to be languageless? You know, what was going on in his head? Yeah. And I asked and I asked and I asked, and he starts telling me that was the dark time in his life learning language it's, it's like the lights went on and I tell him well we know about language and we want to know what it's like not to have language and he doesn't want to talk about it but there was a day she says when she was writing the book and she met Ildefonso in a restaurant and there he was sitting with his brother Mario who she never met before and she quickly learned that Mario also was deaf and languageless Really? So I was shocked, and because I was so amazed, going, I, I can't believe you have a languageless brother, that's when, um, when Ildefonso said, well, let, let me introduce you to some of my friends. So they get in a car and they drive for a while. We stop at this apartment, we walk into this small little room, and there were these six Mexican men doing this mime routine. Wait, all these guys were like Ildefonso used to be? They had no language. Wow. They were all born deaf, and they didn't know that they were deaf. And what, what were they doing? One man would stand up, and he would start miming. He would just start acting out a bullfight. So he'd be the bull, and he'd be charging, and then he'd be the um, matador, and then he'd be somebody in the crowd watching, and then he would add a detail. For example? A hat. And then they'd swap, so then another guy would get up to take over the story. Then they'd start miming. They'd reenact the matador. Describe the hat. But now the second storyteller would add a new detail. Like another person with a pair of glasses or something. So each one would stand up, take the bullfight, the same bullfight to a different <laughs> point, and add a detail. Exactly, exactly. Oh, my God. In other words, it would take him maybe 45 minutes to say... 
Do you remember the time when we were at the bullfight and this woman did such and such? Hmm. Wow. It was like drawing a picture. Well, let me ask you a, a, a pull-it-all-together question. I was about to think that what a language is is a great connector. But this last story makes me wonder. These are five men really sharing and connecting on details. So is the difference that language makes just efficiency or does it affect your heart or your whole way of... I, I can't tell. I'm not sure anymore. Well, I'll, I'll give you Ildefonso's answer, which when I saw him um, a couple years later after this incident, I asked him about his friends, and he said he couldn't talk to them anymore. He, he wasn't willing to go through that tedious effort of all the miming anymore. But the interesting thing that he said was he can't even think that way anymore. He said he can't think the way he used to think. And when I pushed him to ask about what it was like to be languageless, he... The closest he ever came to any kind of an answer was exactly that. I don't know, I don't remember. I think differently now. <laughs>